Hello and welcome back. We're now on the fifth episode of One Christian Thinks, a podcast that examines current events, politics, worldview, and ideologies from an explicitly Christian perspective. I am your host, Mike Hutton. If this is your first time listening, I ask that you press pause and listen to the first episode, where I introduce the show, my motivations, and give some guiding principles. I also recommend listening to the last two episodes, as this episode is a continuation of both of those, analyzing the Black Lives Matter movement. In this episode, we will examine a couple of the claims that Black Lives Matter makes. Just a bit of a review so far. In the first episode in this series, looking at Black Lives Matter, we compared the ideological basis for Black Lives Matter, identity politics, with a biblical identity. I tried to show how identity politics only really breeds division, while true unity is only possible with a biblical view of identity. In the second episode of the series, we considered the definition of racism. I explained how the definition has changed from one that has an absolute basis that we're all made in the image of God into a definition that is much more malleable based on the position you hold inside a political or social power structure. This is what allows activists to claim that all white people are inherently racist, whether they know it or not. Since white people are deemed to have privilege and thus a a higher position on society's so-called totem pole. Oh wait, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say that someone might call it racist. So through the redefining of the word racism, we can see that Black Lives Matter and other so-called anti-racists have actually become a political movement. They're no longer necessarily concerned about equal dignity and respect between black and whites. Now they are concerned with tearing down the political and social structures, which they have deemed to be racist and supplanting those with structures of their own. Ultimately, their concern is to destroy the current power system so they can take over. So now that we understand the basis for the movement, let's take a look at a few of their claims as to why the current power structure must be torn down. The basic premise is that the current power system is racist. It systematically and systemically oppresses black people and thus it has to be torn down to its roots. The evidence for this claim is very simple. Disparities exist between white people and black people and that's all the evidence you need. So, for example, black people are imprisoned at a higher rate than white people. Black people have lower income, lower levels of education, and higher unemployment than their white counterparts. Of course, the cause for all of this is racism. Now, keep in mind that this does not necessarily refer to the original definition of racism, that all people must be treated with equal respect and dignity. This is referring to the third definition of racism, a system of advantage based on skin color. Confusing stuff, I know. Now, I want to take a look at this system that supposedly gives advantages to people based on skin color. I can't examine every claim. That would take far too long. Rather, I want to look at one specific claim, 
that black men are disproportionately targeted by police and they are also disproportionately incarcerated or imprisoned. I know statistics bore some people, so I won't discuss them at length, but we do have to discuss them at least a little to understand more accurately what is going on. I'm also going to use US statistics because that is where the Black Lives Matter movement started and arguably it's also where it has the most influence. So first, let's look at the incarceration rates. In the US in 2010, white people made up 64% of the general population and only 39% of the incarcerated population. Hispanics made up 16% of the US population, but 19% of the incarcerated population. And black people, well, they only made up 13% of the US population, but a full 40% of the incarcerated population. Black people were incarcerated at more than five times the rate of white people. That must be due to racism, right? Before we leap to that conclusion, what about the Asian people? Well, the numbers don't lie. Asian people were only incarcerated less than one-third as often as white people. Actually, black people were 20 times as likely to be incarcerated as Asians. Are you sure white supremacy and racism is at play here? To examine this further, I want to look at homicide statistics differentiated by race. The reason that homicide is a good indicator, especially of general violent criminality, is because, well, at the end of the day, you have a dead body. Thefts, assaults, and even rapes can be faked, ignored, or left unprosecuted, potentially leading to skewed statistics when examining something like systemic racism. But a dead body is a dead body, and it's a lot tougher to fake or ignore. This is kind of a standard way to examine violent crime trends within criminology. So what are the homicide statistics for the US? Now, in case anyone doubts these statistics, I found three sources. They're all listed in the show notes. They cover from the year 1976 to 2013, almost 40 years. And between those years, the trends are remarkably consistent. Specifically between 1980 and 2008, white people, making up approximately 64% of the population, committed approximately 45% of the murders. Black people, making up only 13% of the population, committed approximately 53% of the murders. Most of the murders are intraracial, which means White murderers usually kill white victims, and black murderers usually kill black victims. But what's most important here is that when sorting murderers by race, the proportions actually line up quite closely to the proportion seen in prison, according to the, to the 2010 data discussed previously. White people committed approximately 45% of the murders and account for 39% of the prison population, while black people commit 53% of the murders and account for 40% of the prison population. Again, are you sure these statistics support the explanation of racism? The only real conclusion that we can make when we compare incarceration rates to violent crime rates 
is that there's higher violent criminality in the black community. We can examine these trends to try to understand why that higher violent crime rate exists, but we can't just blame the higher incarceration rate on racism. The trends simply don't support that. But what about the idea that police are targeting black people and are disproportionately killing them? Well, if the data is analyzed at face value, then you might think the statistics support that claim. After all, black people make up only 13% of the US population, but about 25% of the police shooting victims. That answers it, right? But again, let's dig a little deeper. Let's look at the raw numbers for murder victims. In 2013, 2,918 white people were killed, most of them killed by white people. In the same year, 2,434 black people were killed, most of them killed by black people. Again, white people make up 64% of the US population, and black people make up just 13% of the population. There are five times as many white people as black people, but there are just about the same number of black murder victims as white murder victims. The kicker here is that over 92% of the black victims were killed by black murderers. So, black people are murdered disproportionately, but they're murdered disproportionately by other black people. The murder rate is not evidence of racism. It's only evidence of increased violent criminality in the black community. So now, given that we have clear statistical evidence of increased violent criminality in the black community, you would also expect increased police interactions and thus the potential for a greater number of police shootings. That just statistically makes sense. So let's compare those numbers of murder victims to the number of people who were killed by the police between 2017 and 2019 in the United States. These numbers would include both wrongful and justified shootings, because sometimes police shootings are justified. Not all the time, but these numbers include all killings by police officers. So what do the statistics tell us here? Are the police going through the streets and indiscriminately killing black people, as the media seems to suggest? Keeping in mind that approximately 3,000 white people are murdered each year, well, between 2017 and 2019, 370 to 457 white people were killed by cops each year. Again, keeping in mind that approximately 2,500 black people are murdered each year, between 2017 and 2019, 209 to 235 black people were killed by cops each year. So, when comparing the number of police shootings to the number of murders within the black or white community, the numbers actually line up fairly closely. The statistics simply do not show the disproportionate targeting of the black community by police. It simply isn't there. On top of that, do you know the name of any white person killed by a cop in the last 15 years? Because statistically, it happened about twice as often as black people. Do you hear any outrage over the massively disproportionate number of black-on-black -black murders? Because approximately 10 times as many black people are murdered by other black people than black people killed by cops. 
Why isn't Black Lives Matter protesting to stop black-on-black crime? After all, many more black lives are taken by criminals than cops. When you consider that many, not all, but many police shootings are actually justified. In fact, the disproportionality of black people killed by cops might not even be what we would expect, given the black violent crime rate. Black-on-black crime had nearly the same number of victims as white-on-white crime, even though there are one-fifth the number of black people than white people in the population. Given that vastly disproportionate rate of criminality, we might actually expect that the cops would end up killing more black people, approximately the same number as white people killed by cops. But we don't see that. We can't use these statistics as evidence of systemic racism. The only conclusion that we can really draw from them is that the violent crime rate in the black community is much higher. It's very disproportionate. We can discuss why that might be, but simply attributing it to racism does not hold up. Now, I threw a lot of numbers out there pretty quickly. Perhaps you didn't follow all of it. But what I'm doing is sort of what I see as a fairly basic level of criminological analysis. You don't need to be an expert to see these patterns. But the very same statistics that are used by Black Lives Matter and presented in popular media as evidence for systemic racism actually seem to paint the opposite picture when considered more fully. In fact, one of the sources I found implicitly supporting the idea of systemic racism was PolitiFact, a fact-checking website, one of the great arbiters of truth. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. Their analysis seemed to deliberately only scratch the surface. Four years ago, a group of criminologists at Washington State University examined if cops are more hesitant to shoot black or white suspects. First, implicit bias was examined. Now, a bit of a caveat. Implicit bias is very hard to evaluate, and perhaps impossible to change. But the researchers found that, in a group of 80 officers, the officers were generally biased against black suspects. But what they also found was that those very same officers were actually slower to shoot black armed suspects than white armed suspects, which is the very opposite of what the media is saying. Now, I very specifically remember this study because I read it while I was a student in a police psychology course. During that course, it was gently implied that police were racist against blacks, blah, blah, blah. I brought up this study, which at the time was a pretty brand new study. I thought maybe it would shed some new light on the issue. But the prof essentially dismissed it, only saying it was very controversial. I laughed to myself. Here was a highly accredited professor at a pretty decent university simply dismissing an academic study because the results were too controversial. What a joke. Now, with this statistical analysis in mind, I want to very briefly look at the four most recent incidents involving black people dying at the hands of the police. Every one of these cases has been used as evidence for systemic racism. Before we get into it, I want to point out the logical contradiction in that. It is not possible to use any single incident 
as evidence for a widespread trend. So for example, one person might get a flu vaccine and still get sick from the flu. But that doesn't mean that the flu vaccine was absolutely ineffective for everyone. Likewise, it's not possible to use a widespread trend to analyze any one incident. For example, with a pandemic like COVID-19 still on everyone's mind, just because someone gets sick, it doesn't immediately mean that it must be COVID-19. So when talking about systemic racism and police brutality, one incident of police racism does not mean the whole system is racist. No, the only proper conclusion you can take from it is that the one cop involved in that one incident was racist. Likewise, if the system is racist, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone in the system is racist through and through. So realistically, looking at these four situations doesn't allow us to make any logical conclusions about the system. That's why we looked at the statistics first. The statistics show general trends and therefore allow us to make more general conclusions. And the statistics show that, at least with regards to police shootings, black people are not disproportionately targeted. Moving on now to Breonna Taylor, who was apparently shot in her bed as police executed a no-knock warrant. This is where the police essentially kick open a house or apartment door and go in heavily armed because they're expecting heavy resistance or some other violent response. The goal is to get in and out as quickly as possible to minimize any potential for unnecessary violence. The only problem, in this case, they were at the wrong apartment. Breonna Taylor's boyfriend shot at the cops, which wasn't necessarily unjustified in the case of having armed men burst into your apartment at night. And then the cops justifiably shot back, hitting Breonna Taylor and killing her in the process. Yes, you can blame the cops, but the cops who entered the apartment that night likely would not have known about the mistaken address. In this case, it's a horrible, a tragic mistake, and someone should be held responsible. But the officers who executed the warrant are not likely the ones who were responsible for the mistake. And above all, there's no evidence of explicit or implied racism. Second, George Floyd. The video of his death is unquestionably horrible. But the context here is very important. The context only came out via leaked police body cam footage long after the protests and riots had started. The police body cam footage show a prolonged encounter with George Floyd, where the officers worked to subdue Floyd in a respectful manner. Only once Floyd would not comply, would not sit in a police cruiser, and appeared to be in physical and psychological distress already, did the officers put him on the ground in order to prevent him from running away. Yes, Chauvin kneeled on his neck, but he was actually allowed to use this type of restraint, according to the Minneapolis Police Department. In fact, according to the statistics, this type of restraint had previously been used approximately 244 times, and no one died from it. This is the only instance of that neck restraint being used and someone dying. Add to these points 
that Floyd had a cocktail of drugs in his system, including potentially lethal doses of both fentanyl and methamphetamine. Are you still so sure that Chauvin deliberately killed Floyd? Chauvin may be convicted of manslaughter, which would be negligence resulting in death, but even that is up in the air. And racism? Again, no evidence of explicit or implied racism. The third situation, Rayshard Brooks getting shot because he fell asleep in a Wendy's parking lot while being black, as the story goes. Again, context is everything. The officers had an extended, polite, respectful encounter with Brooks until he refused to take a sobriety test. After all, he had been driving impaired. He resisted arrest and proceeded to fight with the officers. He managed to grab a taser off of an officer, attempted to use it, and then they shot back at him. Don't take it from me, but plenty of police officers and lawyers have said this was an entirely justified shooting. Again, no evidence of explicit or implied racism. The fourth situation, which just happened a few days ago. As an organization called Truth Out reported, Jacob Blake was trying to break up a fight. He wasn't armed. He was relieved police had arrived to handle the fight, so he went to get in his car and drive his children safely home. They, the cops, shot him seven times in his back in front of his children. If they call themselves Truth Out, they must be concerned with the truth, right? Well, out of the five statements they made, at least three are outright lies. The fourth is a half-truth, and only the fifth, that it all happened in front of his children, is correct. So let's take a closer look. Again, context. First, there was a warrant out for Jacob Blake's arrest for sexual assault, trespassing, and domestic abuse. Second, he probably wasn't breaking up a fight, since according to one report, police had actually been called on Blake because he was in a home where he wasn't supposed to be and had stolen someone's keys and wouldn't give them back. Police were called, so they attempted to arrest him for the open warrant, at which point he fought back. They tried to tase him. It had no effect. Uh, I think he tried to steal a taser off a cop, uh, at which point the cops had to escalate, so they drew their weapons. He broke off the fight with them, walked straight to a vehicle, opened the door, and moved to reach or get inside the vehicle. My first time watching the video, I immediately thought, he's going for a weapon. There's a weapon inside that vehicle. He's going to grab it and spin around and use it on the cops. That was my first reaction. And the officers wouldn't have known if he had a, some sort of weapon in the vehicle and was going to use it against them, or even if it was his own vehicle. If they had been called because he had stolen someone's keys, it's possible that he was going to steal the vehicle and kidnap the children inside as well. Or maybe he was getting in the vehicle to use the vehicle as a weapon against the cops. As it turns out, several reports said there was a knife on the floorboard in the car. So much context that a simple 30-second cell phone video doesn't give. Many analysts say this is an example of an unprosecutable shooting. There is just not enough evidence to secure any sort of conviction against the officers in question. And once again, 
no evidence of explicit or implied racism, at least not yet. Some people say that in these cases, we need as much evidence, as much transparency as possible. Tensions are so high right now that every possible bit of evidence will help. With as much evidence as possible, people will be less prone to rioting. I agree. We do need as much clarity as possible. But increased clarity won't decrease the tensions. In each incident, minds were made up as soon as the news reports hit the internet. In many people's minds, especially the Black Lives Matter protesters, every single one of these incidents was clear evidence of systemic racism. The only thing they need to know was that a black person had died at the hands of a police officer. That's evidence enough. Again, at risk of sounding like a broken record, the reason they can make that judgment is because the police officers have a position of power in society which makes them racist. Police officers, especially white police officers, have a position of power so any action taken against a black person, especially if that black person dies, is oppression. It's racism. That's the long and short of it. And that's justification for protesting. Although there is not much protesting going on anymore. It's justification for the rioting, looting, and destruction. Areas of Minneapolis where George Floyd died look like a war zone. At least 29 people have died during the national protests of his death, 25 with gunshot wounds. Those aren't police shootings. Those are the rioters being violent. Many, many more have been injured. The Wendy's that Rayshard Brooks parked at and where he was later shot by police officers was burned to the ground. The night after Jacob Blake was shot in Kenosha, car dealerships in that city were lit on fire. There was a more recent incident where a black man was pursued by police as a murder suspect, he committed suicide, but the rumor was that the cops had shot him, so people rioted again. He had killed himself. And people didn't wait for the actual story. The actual facts, the truth of each situation, doesn't matter. It's safe to say that there have been hundreds of millions of dollars in property damage since the start of the protests. Many of those businesses owned by minorities. There are videos of people, both young and elderly, white and minority, male and female, assaulted and beaten for trying to stop the violence or prevent damage to their business. In Seattle just recently, rioters attempted to set fire to a police precinct and at the same time seal the doors shut with quick-set concrete to prevent anyone inside from escaping the fire. More evidence, transparency, and clarity will not prevent these acts of violence. Because minds are already made up. A police officer shoots a black man, that's systemic racism, let's tear the system down. But the truth behind the statistics, and the truth behind each individual story, really does matter. Yes, I understand that everyone has their own perspective. That does not mean everyone can have their own truth, which is what postmodern theory says. Everyone has their own perspective of a situation, but there is still the actual truth of that situation, and the truth matters. Because if you're basing your public policy off of a lie, then the situation 
is only going to get worse. So one of Black Lives Matter's policy fights is to abolish or defund the police. Now, anyone with common sense scoffs at that idea. So they make it more palatable by saying that the money previously used to fund the police should now be used for social programs, schools, low-income housing, and social workers, which will all work together to help out the black community. And while there may be a grain of truth to that, the idea of taking the police out of the communities that suffer from the highest amounts of violent crime is just nonsensical. But nevertheless, shortly after George, George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, Minneapolis City Council unanimously voted to defund the police in their city and slowly replace it with a Department of Community Safety and Violence Prevention. And instead of police officers, they would have peace officers. One wonders what type of measures the peace officers will take to ensure peace. Or another one of Black Lives Matter stances. This is a quote directly from their website. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. That sounds quite utopian, doesn't it? But perhaps one of the reasons for the high rate of violent crime is because the black community has already done away with the nuclear family. According to the NAACP, which stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, apparently they missed the memo that the phrase colored people is racist, one in three black boys today will be sentenced to prison at some point in their life, compared to one in 17 white boys. Now, I'm not sure if this statistic is entirely accurate, but if we take it at face value, we do know that one risk factor for criminality is boys growing up without a father. In 2013, approximately 68% of black women who gave birth were unmarried, compared to only 23% of white women. The single motherhood rate in the black community is steadily rising. An absentee father is a significant risk factor for criminality, and yet Black Lives Matter wants to continue to do away with the nuclear family? What kind of twisted logic is that? I would say it's logic that is not based on truth at all, but a lie. A deep, nefarious lie that ties all of this together and holds down the people that claim to be oppressed. It's not just a problem in the black community, but it's a lie that threatens us all. And it's one that we all want to believe. I'm going to reveal this lie in the next episode, but in the meantime, let me know what you think this lie is. Post it on the Facebook page or send me an email. I'm interested in knowing what you think. As always, if you enjoyed this discussion, there are sources in the show notes for links and books discussing this further. I particularly want to highlight two thinkers and two books. These men are both economists, both black, and both grew up and started their careers in the civil rights era. They lived through systemic racism and know it intimately. Both have had to put up with racist attacks, generally not from white people, but from black people, simply because they dare to go against the narrative of systemic racism, 
Thomas Sowell, which is spelled S-O-W-E-L-L, in his book Discrimination and Disparities, thoroughly examines these ideas. And Walter E. Williams, in his book Race and Economics, does similar. These are two authors that are very worth reading and have a way of simplifying complex issues so that almost anyone can understand. Both have influenced my ideas and I highly recommend them. Finally, if you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe and share. Subscribe to be notified of new content because my production schedule just isn't very consistent. Life has a funny way of getting in the way, which is, is a great thing, I'm not complaining about that. And share, to simply get other people thinking. Of course, I'd also love your feedback. The easiest way to do that is through the One Christian Thinks Facebook page or by email oct at allmail.net that's oct which stands for one christian thinks at allmail.net thanks for listening and until next time keep thinking